Hello, welcome back to Labor for Truth. This is Tim Bankus, the Reform Minarchist. Um, today I wanted to address essentially a conversation that happened amongst blacks in the early days when they were freed from slavery and essentially how that's played into their whole history since then um, and that ongoing conversation and then how that plays into essentially today um, and how looking at basically the choices that they made ideologically and where they put their hope then we can see basically where that has led them today. So there's a huge section of um, this book that I want to quote that just really tells the story. So the book is Please Stop Helping Us, How Liberals Make It Hard for How Liberals Make It Hard for Blacks to Succeed by Jason L. Riley. He's like a journalist for the Wall Street Journal for like a couple of decades. He's really solid and the whole book is really good. I definitely plan on doing a lot of writing and podcast on it. Um, I'm doing kind of a write-up on it right now. So I think that today everyone's talking about black culture and, you know, systemic racism and critical race theory and all, all that kind of stuff. And so a book like this, which was written, you know, I think like a decade ago, it's super timely because like a lot of his arguments in there, in my opinion, kind of get us off the hook, us being white. But, um, yeah, without further ado, I'm going to start the quote. Like I said, it's going to be a while, but it's really good. Quote, For more than a century, black leaders have tangled with one another over whether to pursue economic independence or focus their energies on intriguing, intrig- oh, sorry, integrating political, co- corporate, and educational institutions. W.E. Du Bois, author of the groundbreaking 1903 treatise The Souls of Black Folk, argued for the latter, while his contemporary Booker T. Washington said political activity alone is not the answer. In addition, wrote Washington, you must have property, industry, skill, economy, intelligence, and character. Where Washington wanted to focus on self-determination through independent black schools and businesses, Du Bois argued that civil rights are more important because political power is necessary to protect any economic gains. Much has been made of this rivalry, maybe too much. What makes what matter sorry, what matters most is that the two men differed mainly in emphasis, not objectives. Washington never renounced equal rights, and Du Bois acknowledged the need for vocational education as a means to self-improvement. Washington inherited the mantle of black leadership from the abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who gained fame through his uh, slave memoirs and oratory and ultimately helped persuade President Lincoln to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. In 1981, Washington founded Alabama's Tuskegee Institute, which trained recently freed slaves to become teachers. He became a national figure in 1895 after giving a speech in Atlanta in which he called for racial conciliation and urged blacks to focus on economic self-advancement. For the next two decades, Washington would be America's preeminent black leader. He advised presidents and wrote an autobiography that was translated into seven languages and became the best-selling book ever written by someone black. Andrew Carnegie called him the second father of the country. John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan were major benefactors. 
Harvard and Dartmouth gave him honorary degrees. Mark Twain was an admirer. After the NAACP was established in 1909, and as Du Bois's prominence grew, Washington's power was weakened. But even after his death in 1915, Washington remained widely appreciated within the black community and elsewhere. Schools and parks were named in his honor. His likeness appeared on a U.S. postage stamp. In 1942, a Liberty ship was christened the Booker T. Washington, and in 1956, marking the 100th anniversary of Washington's birth, President Dwight Eisenhower created a national monument to the former slave. But Washington's, but Washington's legacy would come under assault in the 1960s when civil rights advocates turned in earnest to protect politics. Washington had stressed self-improvement, not immediate political rights through confrontation. The new black leaders dismissed such methods along with the man best known for utilizing them. Du Bois's vision by way of the NAACP, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. had prevailed. By the 1960s, blacks throughout the United States increasingly condemned Washington as a acquiesced as having acquiesced in the racial discrimination that so many were now challenging in restaurants, waiting rooms, and courthouses, wrote Washington biographer Robert Norrell. John Lewis, the 1960s civil rights activist, would later become a congressman, suggested that Washington deserved to be ridiculed and vilified by his own people for working so closely with white America. The black left today continues to view Washington not as a pragmatist, but as someone who naively accommodated white racism. This distortion of Washington contributed to a narrowing of the limits Americans have put on black aspirations and accomplishments, wrote Norrell. After the 1960s, any understanding of the role of black leaders was cast in the context of Martin Luther King Jr.'s leadership, with the, with the implication that African Americans can rise in American life only through direct action protests against the political order. Not only has Washington's legacy thus been maligned, but several generations of blacks have come to believe that the only legitimate means of group progress is political agitation of the NAACP, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton variety. If you are more interested in black self-development than in keeping whites on the defensive, you're accommodating racism. In January 2014 interview with the New Yorker magazine, Obama invoked Washington's name unfavorably to push back at liberal black critics who accused the president of being insufficiently concerned with white racism. There have been times where some thought, uh, yeah, this is a quote from him. There have been times where some thoughtful and sometimes not so thoughtful African-American commentators have gotten on both Michelle and me, suggesting racism and we're in, engaging in sort of up by the bootstraps Booker T. Washington messages that let the larger society off the hook, said Obama. Washington's style of interracial engagement has been all but forgotten and when remembered, usually disparaged. He put a premium on finding consensus and emphasizing with other groups and by his example encouraged a dominant group to do the same. He cautioned that when people protest constantly about their mistreatment, they soon get a reputation as complainers, and others stop listening to their grievances. Blacks need a reputation for being hardworking, intelligent, and patriotic, Washington taught, and not for being aggrieved. So, in a minute, I'm going to read another quote to basically kind of be it's like his counter-argument to, to this kind of conversation, but... 
if you want to put it into another light, the W.E. Du Bois was really like a socialist light. Like, he, you know, I don't think he necessarily believed in socialism, but it's like, you know, at, at socialism's core, you believe that the government is there to, you know, bring about benefits and they're the ones that are responsible to take care of things. You know, so if you believe in like a strong government intervention into the economy, then what it leads to is at least socialism. Um, and on the flip side, Booker T. Washington is more of a libertarian type, right? He's like, hey, you know, you govern yourself, like you own yourself, like any sort of progress you make is like through your own working. You know, you're not limited by anybody else, by politics or people's racism or whatever. You just got to work hard and, and be valuable and people are going to hire you. Um, and it's kind of like another coin or side to what I was, what, uh, there's this, um, there's these, some libertarians that basically say one approach to to basically making the government smaller is to making it, is to make it seem obsolete. Like that basically the private market is performing so well that, um, it's coming in and essentially taking over the role of the government, whether it be like private security or like you see with Amazon, FedEx and UPS, like you're kind of t- getting rid of the postal service by default, like postal service still exists, but it's just like continuing to lose ground and continue to be unprofitable because of the free market. And so the same thing here, it's like, Hey, no, like, you know, they can be racist, but if you're like outperforming whites and everyone else, like as a black person, then they're, naturally they're going to be like, man, I'm going to snatch you up versus somebody else grabbing you. So that's why he's big on self-development. Um, so it's just fascinating because, you know, later on in the 60s, you have the Great Society, you have Lyndon B. Johnson, and he brings in the welfare state. And that's basically the ultimate time where W.E. Du Bois's kind of, inter, like the marrying of the state and the black community, specifically the black mothers, like became a thing. And really it's like truly manifested this idea of socialism, like, the welfare state is basically like socialism or like socialism light for a certain people group. You know, it's like, all right, well, you know, you we're going to help you out in every way and we're going to kind of govern your life, you know, and you're not going to be able to make it as much money as you would like. Or if you do, then we're going to take away our advantages. And so it's very oppressive, you know, but um, yeah, so if and that's what fascinates me is when i learned like i didn't know anybody of this when i first read the book but it just fascinates me that those who were coming out of the slavery where there was a whole group of people frederick Douglass, booker t washington types that were like hey nah like don't you know don't worry about us you know we we just need to you know help ourselves like we don't we don't need to we also, you know, we don't need to, like, and also part of that is obviously, like, we don't need to help ourselves by getting in power and, like, and, like, giving basically special privilege, you know, we just need to, like, in, as individuals be our best and cooperate with one another and help one another, like, all rise up together so that we become, like, actually valuable, not just, like, valuable because somebody has, like, power in the government and can, like, give us favor, unmerited favor, like, that's, that's not, that's, you know, I said at the end, like being a complainer, like that's, that's condescending to a people group. Um, and to prove my point or well, to prove the point, Jason L. Riley actually basically talks about other people groups. Um, 
in his book, and that's what I'm about to read, is basically talking about there's two different groups, the Germans and the Asians, that kind of shun political power, or and they and therefore they kind of shunned um, using politics to essentially grow as people group. But then you have the Irish who basically did what the blacks did, and they have a very parallel experience of being economically limited by that mindset. So um, the next set of quote is actually, basically, he actually talks about Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell did a bunch of research. He's like a really famous economist, and he's actually black. But he uh, did some research on the different uh, gender, uh, sorry, the different races, and he um, found out a lot of interesting facts about um, Germans and Asians. So he says, quote, uh, the economist Thomas Sowell has spent decades searching racial and ethnic groups in the United States and internationally, and this finding showed that political activity generally has not been a factor in the rise of groups from poverty to prosperity. Many Germans came to the United States as indentured servants during colonial times, and while working to pay off the cost of the voyage, they shunned politics. Only after they had risen economically did Germans begin seeking public office, culminating with the elections of President Hoover and Eisenhower. Today, Asian Americans are the nation's best educated and highest earning racial group. A 2013 Pew study reported that 49% of Asians aged 25 and older hold bachelor's degrees versus 31% of whites and 18% of blacks. The median household income for Asians is 66000 which is 12000 more than white households and double that of black households. Yet Asians have little political clout in the United States. There have been a handful of prominent Asian American politicians like Governors, Bobby Jindal of Louisiana and Nikki Haley of South Carolina, but Asians have tended to avoid politics compared with other groups. Between 1990 and 2000, the number of elected officials grew by 23% among blacks, but only by 4% among Asians. Even Asians' vote, uh, voter participation lags behind other groups. In 2008, Asians were significantly less likely than both blacks and whites to have voted. So, you know, we see that Asians, whether they have been here for generations because of the gold mining and, and the railroad building, you know, basically slave labor, or if they've come here in the past few generations, um, you know, they didn't, I mean, they literally don't even vote, let alone like try and get into politics. So, but yeah, they make more money than whites, like, you know, in general, like the white people are the majority population, but on average, Asians are more educated and make more money. Right. So they, they basically took the Booker T. Washington mindset to um, their people group. You know, they didn't necessarily think like that, obviously, but they, you know, had the mindset that, you know, there's nobody who's going to stop them. You know, like they don't need any help from anybody else. Like that's not true growth. Um, that's just codependency. And obviously the Germans, too. You know, the Germans are now obviously whites like Germans and Irish are like the dominant white, like European descendants. Um, and yeah, they like literally said they shun politics. Like when they first got here, they're like, no, we just need to kind of bootstrap. We just need to get down and we just need to work hard and pay off our debt and then build a little bit of wealth. And then maybe we can look into it. So, um, yeah, so you have two different people groups, obviously, you know, one white, one Asian, but then you have the Irish, like I said, and the Irish, um, they sought after political power and they try to use political power to, to get ahead. So, 
He says, Moreover, in those instances where the political success of minority group has come first, the result has often been slower socioeconomic progress. The Irish immigrants who came to the United States in the mid-19th century arrived for a country where 80% of the population was rural. Yet they settled in industrial centers like New York, Philadelphia, and Boston and took low-skilled jobs. Their rise from poverty was especially slow as late as 1920. 80% of all Irish women working in America were domestic servants. Despite the fact that Irish-run political organizations dominated the local government in several big cities with large Irish populations, to most, Ameri- quote, to most Americans today, it is not immediately obvious that the black migrants who left the rural south for the industrial cities of the north starting in the 1940s resemble the Irish immigrants who left rural Ireland and crossed the ocean to the great cities of Atlantic seaboard starting in the 1840s. Uh, in quote, wrote po- political historian Michael Barone. Yet the resemblances are many, and so you know he goes into a a, a bunch of them. Um, I'll just read it quick. Both groups looked to control of government as a means of advancement, and both excelled at politics. They built their own political organizations, modeled their churches, the Irish hierarchical political machines, blacks. Ad hoc organizations assembled by charismatic local leaders. They were initially the object of competition between Democrats and Whigs or Republicans, but within about 20 years, both became heavily, almost unanimously Democratic. Both used politics to create large numbers of uh, public sector jobs for their own people. In some cities where they were majorities, Boston and Jersey, um, city for the Irish, Detroit and Washington for the blacks, they created predatory politics which overloaded the public payroll and neglected to enforce the law ultimately damaging the city's private economies end quote yet it was only after uh sorry yeah so it's end quote of the guy and then now it's jason l riley yet it was only after the decline of famed irish political machines that average irish incomes began to rise irish patronage politics was not the deciding factor in group advancement. Barron noted, quote, Society addressed the ills of the Irish through private charities, the settlement house movement, temperance societies, and police forces, all of which tried to improve individuals' conduct and to help people conform to the standards of the larger society. The Irish rose to average levels of income and education by the 1950s. In the 1960s, an Irish Catholic was elected president of the United States, end quote. So... Essentially, we have, even in our own country, libertarianism fighting with socialism, right? Um, you know, like I said, neither of them, Booker T. Washington or W. Du Bois, believed in these things, but the, you know, they happened to, they happened to overlap. Like, they basically had a prototypal version of these things, or like a light version of them, but... Um, yeah, I think that the contrast between the Asians basically succeeding at the top, I mean, being on average the wealthiest people group and the most educated versus, you know, the blacks being, you know, the least educated and, you know, the least amount of income being made on average um, is huge, you know. So because basically to me, that's a proof that, um, you know, the socialism 
doesn't really bring about prosperity. It brings about, you know, a very codependent, limited kind of experience. Um, and I, I, you know, when I read that, I literally was like, wow, because to me, that's what it really kind of is. That's what's tricky about the whole conversation around race is that. Yes, obviously, white people enslaving other people is terrible, you know, and obviously, it's really great that America and in and, and Britain, like really, were big on trying to end it, you know, whereas it had never been ended before, which that's a whole nother conversation. But, you know, yeah, it was terrible. But I think the conversation really needs to start from like when it comes to causes, like how, how are blacks where they are right now? And like the rest of the book is like this, but how do blacks get where they are right now? You know, it is through them choosing political power and political prestige and political favors in order to try and kind of get in and to get, you know, racial, basically racist special privileges from their own people, whether it's blacks or Irish, they both believed in this. But, you know, how, how good has that really done them, you know? Um, that, that's what I'm concerned about, you know, so whenever I, whenever I see areas where like libertarianism is like proved in society, it's, it's just very, it's very fascinating. And I, and I wanted to point it out and that's why I wanted to do this, uh, podcast was because when I initially read it, I was just like, wow, I mean, can you get any more black and white that, you know, depending on, you know, oneself, you know, owning oneself financially, you know, seeking to help oneself grow and, you know, to, to try and, um, you know, cooperate together. Like I said, they, the Irish used the charities and they had different things where they would work together and not using the government was like the only way they really came out. And, you know, I'm personally German and Irish, so I'm kind of a combination of, you know, both. But yeah, it's just very interesting to me. And I think that it's like, it's very much aligned with the my like what I want for the brand of labor for truth, where it's like, hey, this is something people don't know. And people don't realize that the average white person today has nothing to do with like, quote, systemic racism, like, you know, ultimately, it comes down to the conversation that have been having going on since the blacks got free, you know, blacks ultimately chose to reject Frederick D. Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. And obviously you saw them even going after Obama. So up until re- even up until recently, they've just consistently rejected like the idea of, you know, as they, as they called it bootstrapping, right? Like trying to level up and trying to be your best self, you know, and, um, they've just said, no, we just need people, more people in political power. And, uh, and actually in the book, he talks about how basically there's, they went, the blacks went from like a couple thousand people in political power to like 10,000, like insane growth. But yet like the cities where they're like black dominated major cities and like black mayors and different people in political power that are like black leftists, black caucus people, um, those are the ones that have the most like, you know, quote oppression, like, you know, they, they have like the most amount of uh, poverty and crime and all that. So it's like, okay, well, obviously, like, it's just weird that they, you know, wouldn't connect like the stats, like, hey, there's, we said, hey, if we get in power, 
then we're going to have more money and we're going to be better off. But we're not. And we have like decades of showing that. And but oh, it's but it's the white people who live don't even live here and have no like no power over like what happens here, like in these black, you know, potential like in the black communities, you know, like uh, I'd never even been to the ghetto, you know, over here in Oak Cliff, which is a ghetto in Dallas. Like I'd never been over there in my life up until my buddy moved over there and I was going over there to see him. Like I'm, I'm from the suburbs, like, you know, I'm from like the middle upper class suburbs, like, like 45 minutes away, like, you know, from where my buddy lives, like 30 minutes north of downtown. Like I never barely even went south of downtown until I started doing Uber and people would, you know, obviously request me to go down there. So, you know, what, how am I racist? And that, that's the thing, like, I can get on board with, you know, yeah, like, the welfare state is racist, you know? Like, there is, like, things in place that hold blacks back, right? Just like there's things in place that hold Irish back. But to say that random white people are the problem, like, random people that are just, like, nurses and um, plumbers that just, like, live their life and, like, love their families and try and, like take care of themselves and take care of like those around them like they're the problem it's just so silly and even one of my buddies I was talking to him he's like to be honest dude yeah I mean if you really break it down it's really not white people's problem it's really our own problem our own issues you know culturally that we need to work through so um yeah that's that's what I wanted to bring out I wanted to expose this and I wanted people to see that like always, you know, the libertarian view of economics, uh, always plays out as best, you know, um, if, if they would have chose the more libertarian anti-government kind of stance of you on yourself, you got to govern yourself, you got to develop yourself, you don't can't depend on anybody else. Um, you know, I mean, we can cooperate, right? If there's a mutual benefit, but you can't depend on somebody to go and get political power and then come around and be like, all right, I got you. And like hold the door open for you and give you like special privileges. Um, you know, that's really condescending and obviously it hasn't worked. There's people in power and yet blacks are still poor. So we see the Asians, they barely even vote. They they could care less. You know, they're like, I'm, I got my own money. I got my own life. I make the most amount of money than any other people group. Like, I don't need to go get political power because I'm valuable, right? I don't need to go send Asians into polit- politics to go try and hold the door open for me to get some sort of way in. Like, I am valuable and therefore I get paid more. Like, I'm, I'm educated. I, I'm competent. So, um, Whenever somebody comes to you is really my heart with this is whenever somebody comes to you and say that you have white privilege and white fragility and and you're the problem like I'm talking to you like average white person um you, you know you can just tell them what I just told you like nah man um you know blacks chose this you know they they chose to reject like a free like a, as a people group they in general culturally chose to reject self-development they chose to reject frederick d douglas frederick douglas and booker t washington they chose that for themselves they said no we're gonna go get in political power and they have like it's not just like oh we've wanted to do it but mm, you know we haven't really got to do it yet like it's like nope they have done it they've got into political power but just like the irish who did it before them 
it, like it didn't really help them it didn't like you know it might have helped certain people but it didn't help the whole people group you know it wasn't really like universally helpful for all of them um so yeah that's why i wanted to expose that and i wanted to have this for the record so that people can look to this and and feel a level of freedom and this is really just a start of the conversation because the whole book is basically he says stop helping us how how liberals are keeping making it harder for blacks to see like the whole book is him explaining this so i have 10 points that i'm kind of writing through and fleshing out that i wanted to be able to um share um but i'll, I'll share them over time but all these reasons have nothing to do with white people in the suburbs or white people in the rural areas you know they have to do with the the, the blacks own culture you know the lack of fathers and you know issues with the way people want to use you know the politics and schooling and and the workforce to try and you know make it easier quote quote easier for blacks but really they're not making it better for them so we'll 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 address that more later on but just know that this is a really good standpoint culturally to see that like if you look at the people groups in America so the controlled environment you know the ones that have done the best and like literally right now the richest people group is Asians and they're the most consistent with libertarianism like they're probably not thinking that they're libertarians or realizing it but the fact that they don't even vote and like they don't even really care about it like you know that just is a very consistent with like the idea of like hey man yeah I don't I mean I don't have any hope in the government. Like, I don't have any hope that the government's going to save me. Like, you know, I have my own life. I got to live. I don't need to look to the government. You know, that's crazy. Like, I got to be, I got to be the best version of myself. So I'm valuable. Like, I am, a, I'm, I'm human capital. Like, I am my own, like, means of, of income, you know. So, all right. Well, I'll see you in the next one. Um, yep. Take care, guys.